Welcome, I'm glad you're here. Did you say that to your neighbors? Tonight we're going to look at the Song of Songs, or it may say in some of your Bibles, the Song of Solomon. And so I'd like you to find your place there in the scripture, page 775, if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you. We're going through the peaks of scripture on Wednesday night, and we're in the poetry section. And the Song of Songs is next. You have to love the diversity of topics that you find in the scripture, don't you? Last week, we considered the book of Ecclesiastes, which was written by an older Solomon, and it's considered one of the most depressing books in the entire Bible. As he looks back over his life, and he declares over and over, vanity of vanities. And then tonight, we're going to consider the most romantic book in the Bible, written by a young Solomon who's in love. And he doesn't say vanity of vanities. This is his song of songs. And this is a book of love, romance, sex, marriage. You know, God's word touches on every aspect of our lives. And I'm so glad that it does. I'm so glad that God speaks to every issue of life, even those sensitive ones, where a lot of people would be real hush-hush about. God is loud. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask him to teach us. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you that your word does speak frankly to us about every issue. Because we need frank talk, Lord. We need honest truth. In every single area of our life, I pray that we would be submissive to you. Speak to us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us that Solomon was a prolific writer. We find out there that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Most of those are contained in the book of Proverbs. We also know that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. We also find out in 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. He was a songwriter. And the only one of his songs that we have recorded in the Bible is this one that we look at tonight. This is his song of songs. And the superlative is used here. The idea is that this is his best song. You know, when we say that Jesus is the king of kings, what are we saying? He's the greatest of all the kings. 
the holy of holies is the holiest part of the temple. And that's what's being said here. This is his song of songs. This is his number one hit. This is his top single. And it's a love song. It's a love song. Think of all the love songs that have been written over the course of history. This is perhaps the greatest love song that has ever been written. Now, just a little background from chapter 8. You don't have to go there, but chapter 8 gives us the background of this song. When Solomon was a young man in the palace, king over Israel in the palace of Jerusalem, he owned a vineyard that was located in a place called Baal Hamon, real small country town out in the middle of nowhere, several miles north of Jerusalem. He owned this little vineyard out there, and he leased that vineyard to a family in that town, and they worked that vineyard. And there were a lot of sons in that family, and they were very busy working that field. Well, those sons had a sister, and they required their sister to help with all the work in the vineyard. Their sister is the young woman that falls in love with Solomon, and Solomon falls in love with her. And so this whole song sort of tracks their relationship together as it progresses. And it's really actually really easy to follow this song. I mean, you can see every stage in a relationship. You see attraction. You see dating. You see courtship. You see engagement. You see wedding. You see the marriage. And then you see the maturing of a marriage all the way. And so what we want to do is we just kind of want to look at each phase as we quickly go through the psalm. We learn some important things. So I want to talk about, first of all, the attraction, the dating, the courtship phase. Look at verse 2. The Shulamite is speaking this. That's the name of this young lady that you see throughout. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. The daughters of Jerusalem say, we'll run after you. The Shulamite says, the king has brought me into his chambers. The daughters of Jerusalem say, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And the Shulamite says, rightly do they love you. Okay, so I want you to notice, we have a couple that is attracted to one another. There is physical attraction. She is attracted to Solomon. She's even saying here, I wish I knew his kisses kind of dreaming about being kissed. She likes him, and you'll see in this story that he really likes her, too. He thinks she's beautiful. She thinks he's handsome. 
physical attraction. Nothing wrong with that. Do you realize that? Physical attraction is not dirty. It's not wicked. It's not sinful. Physical attraction is normal. That's how God created us. And here we have a young couple, boy meets girl, and they're physically attracted to one another. Now, understand that physical attraction can't be the biggest, most important part about a relationship. It must be there, yes, but it's not the most important part of a relationship. And you're going to see that this young couple is attracted to each other for more than just physical qualities. Very important. In fact, notice what she says in verse 3. She says, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your what? Your name is ointment poured forth. In those days, name was your, that was your personality, that was your character, that was your reputation. And she's saying, I'm attracted to this man because his character, his reputation is like oil poured out. Character. Personality. Reputation. A man of good character should be a man that you're attracted to, not just physical. Listen, character and personality is forever. Physical beauty fades. Physical beauty fades. Character is forever. Now, these two are attracted to each other for their character. In addition to the physical attraction. Look at verse 5. She says, I am dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Now I want you to notice, this young lady was a very hard working, responsible woman. She is working in that vineyard. Her brothers are making her. And she's baking in the sun day after day, sun up to sundown, working very hard. She says she's getting tanned. She's dark because of it. Now, understand, in our culture, to be tan is to be beautiful, right? We think of beautiful girls and guys, they got that nice California tan, right? There's people that even go into, to, you know, tanning booths to get that tan. In those days, that was not a sign of beauty. A tan was a sign of a person who had to work in the hot sun all day doing manual labor. In those days, the beautiful girl was the girl with fair skin, pale skin, the one who works indoors, who lounges around in the palace. That was beauty. So notice... She works very hard, 
And notice that she does not consider herself a beauty queen. She says, I'm busy all day doing all of these vineyards that I can't even keep up my own vineyard. She can't keep up her own appearance. This young lady was not prissy. She was not a little prima donna. And and I would say that, ladies, don't be known for that. Don't be known as as the, you know, you're always worried about how you look and you don't want to break a nail. And guys, listen, you don't want to be attracted to a person like that who is all cut up in physical appearance. The beauty queen. Listen, there's way more to a relationship than that. She's hardworking. And I think that's what made her attractive to Solomon. Be attractive, attracted to people who are responsible and hardworking. Guys, if you're dating, is that girl hardworking? Gals, if you're dating, you better date a man who's hardworking and responsible. You do not want to marry a mama's boy. You do not want to marry a man who's sitting around all day playing video games. And let me tell you, in all seriousness, listen carefully. Finding a hardworking, responsible person is becoming harder and harder in this world. You find somebody responsible and hardworking and you found a jewel and you hold on to that person. That hardworking quality. Now notice what she says in verse 7. She's talking to Solomon now. She says, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Okay, so here she is. She's sort of making a move here. She's saying, hey, where do you hang out? Where can I meet with you? And she's saying, where can I meet with you in a place that is permissible? She's a chaste woman. She says, I'd like to meet with you somewhere at noon. Why would I come to you at night veiled? Because you know in those days at night, the prostitutes would come veiled. And so she's literally saying to this guy, I want to come to you in a legit way. I do not want to come seductively. You should never seek to seduce a man. Guys, you should never be attracted to that woman who will seduce you because she'll seduce someone else. This woman is chaste. She says, where can I meet? Now look at verse 8. This is Solomon talking now. He goes, if you do not know, O fairest among women... Follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd tents. In other words, I'm going to be easy to find. You'll find me here. And he gives her clues. This is where we can meet. This is where we're going to bump into each other. Now, I've noticed if you have a man and a woman who are attracted to each other, they're always going to find a way to find each other, right? 
I remember when I was working as a, a pastor intern at Calvary of Albuquerque and Kim was working as the secretary at that church and she was in the front office. I had to go by that front office every day for something. <laughs> there was always something, you know, you, 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 you reach out to each other. You want to be with each other. Nothing wrong with that. She says, I want to be with you. And he said, well, let me show you where we can be, to, be together. Notice what he says to her in verse 9. I love this. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, that doesn't sound romantic. Honey, you're a horse, right? <laughs> what he's saying is my filly among Pharaoh's char- chariots. He was a horse guy. And he was talking about the horse that was his stallion, his prize. And what he's saying to her is, you're, you're the prize of all that are available. You're the prize. And I want you to notice something. This is so important. In verse 9, he says, I have compared you my what? My love. My love. That word is used nine times in this book. You know what it could also be translated? Darling. My darling. My darling. And you know what darling means? Friend. Friend. My dear friend. I mention that because I want you to see that their attraction for one another is born out of friendship. Friendship. They like each other's company. So I, I, I point all this out. In this attraction phase, there's the physical attraction, but then there should be the character and the personality. And looking out how hard a person works, how responsible they are, how chaste they are. And looking at the friendship quality. So they've met, they start hanging out more together, they start getting more serious. Look over at verse 3 of chapter 2. This is her speaking again, and she says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. She says, I sat down in his shade with great delight. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. She says, he brought me to the banqueting house. And his banner over me was love. I take you there because I I noticed there's a private setting and then there's a public setting. In that first verse, they're on a private picnic. They're, They're in a garden. And she says to him in that capacity... I find delight under your shade. In in other words, she would say to him, I feel safe with you. I feel secure with you. Girls, look for that. Guys, be that to your wife. Be safe. Let her know that 
you have, she has your protection and that her feelings can be protected, that she can trust you with her emotions. And she feels safe with him in private. And then in public, she says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. She's sort of boasting to her friends now. And she said, guess where I went with Solomon? I went into the banqueting house and his banner over me at that banquet was love. Now, what does that mean? Your banner over me is love. What's a banner? It's a flag. And they would lift the flag up high to distinguish different parts of the armies, right? A, flag, a banner is meant to be seen. A flag is meant to be seen. And what she's saying is when I'm in public with him, publicly, his affection towards me is love. He adores me in public. Guys, be that way. Take your lady out. Open the door for her. Take her to dinner. When you're in a large gathering, give her all the attention. Her banner, his banner over me is love. Ladies, if you're ever dating someone, and you could tell your kids this, if if your daughter is ever dating someone and that someone is very secretive about the relationship, if you ever date someone, they're very secretive. They don't want to be seen with you in public. Run. Run. Your guy better adore you in public. His banner over you better be love. At this point, they're getting very, very close. And their physical desire is starting to awake. Notice what she says in verse 5. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples. For I'm lovesick. She says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Now that's talking about sex. And right there, she is dreaming about sex. She wants to be intimate with him. But then in verse 7, she quickly says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Okay. You're dating, you're attracted. Those desires don't awaken it. The dating relationship is not the time for sex. Protect that. Guard yourself. Very important. Okay. Things progress. Look at verse 8. Now they're going to go on a big-time date. In fact, Solomon's going to pick her up at her mom's house, at her parents' house. Look what she says in verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, 
He stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. Now, when you go pick up your girl on a date, I don't recommend doing that. You might get shot. Ring the doorbell. Don't honk. Don't give a text. Stop your car. Get out of it. Ring the bell and meet her parents, right? Verse 10. My beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. Look at verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. Notice what she's looking forward to on this date. She wants to see him. And she wants to what? She wants to hear him. They enjoy talking, communicating, interacting. Guys and gals, dating or married. Do things together where you can look each other in the eye and talk. And dream. And connect. They do this. Now look at verse 15. I think this is a very important verse. Catch us the foxes. The little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender Grace. Listen carefully. A lot of people say that this is the brothers talking here. In the original Hebrew, you don't have who the speakers are. Okay, so a lot of people say the brothers at this point, she, he comes to pick her up on a date and the brothers say, wait a minute, you got to go work in the vineyard. You got some great brothers, right? It's possible, but it's also possible that she's still talking to Solomon. And she's saying to Solomon on this date, hey, we have some foxes to catch. And in that case, she's speaking figuratively. All that to say this, in every relationship, I don't care how ideal it is, there will always be little foxes to catch. And I recommend that those foxes get caught during the dating, during the courtship. What little foxes? Communication. Jealousy. Maybe finances. Maybe a health issue. Maybe working with potential in-laws. All those things. In a dating relationship, you got to catch those foxes. And you want to catch them soon. You want to know. In fact, it's been said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. You want to have your eyes wide open when you're dating. When you're engaged. Parent, you be sure to tell your kid that. There have been times where, you know, and we've all heard the stories where somebody meets somebody, they, they've known each other for two weeks, right? 
and they get married. Have you heard those? I don't recommend that. If you're going to catch all the foxes, that takes time. And I think a couple should date seriously for at a minimum a year, at least a year and a half, possibly even two. I think every couple should get in a big fight before they get married. And I really mean that. So you can gauge how you respond to conflict. Catch those foxes. Okay. They've done the dating, the courtship. Now they get married. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 6. Tell me if you know what this is. She writes, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders? Behold, it's Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has the sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a planican. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his what? His wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. So what's going on in this passage? They're officially getting married. He's on his procession procession with his guys to go pick her up at her parents' house. And this is the day that they formally, officially, legitimately get married. And it is on that day when they legitimately get married that they begin to live together and sleep together and have sexual relations together. When they got married. And that is what the Bible teaches. You don't live together. You don't sleep together. You don't have sexual relationships together until the day you get married. And by that, I mean a legal marriage. I have met couples. I have met couples that say, well, we're married before God. We've made that commitment before God. Sister, if you ever have a guy that says, hey, let's go out onto a hilltop at night under a full moon and let's get married on the hilltop and we'll get married before God. Run. Run, Forrest, run. Hey, we're married before God. Now let's live, let's move in together, we'll live together, we'll sleep together and all that. You know what a guy, a guy who does that has kept a door open. A back door is open. 
if he's serious, if you're serious, if you love him, if he loves you, then you get rings, you exchange them, you go before a pastor, you go before a judge, and you sign your name on the dotted line, and you get married. And then you live together. And then you sleep together. So important. So they did it. They did the right thing. Chapter 4 describes their wedding night. You might have to fan yourself. She says, or he says to her in verse 1, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, that's fine. I know it doesn't sound great to us. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. Verse 3, your lips are like a strand of scarlet. Your mouth is lovely. Verse 4, your neck is like the Tower of David, meaning you have a royal look to you. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. What's going on there? She's undressing before him, and he's complimenting her on her beauty. Verse 6, he says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Verse 9, he says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Verse 11, he says, your lips, O my spouse, drip as honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Whoa. You believe that's in the Bible? Look what she says to him in verse 16. Skip down to verse 16. She says, awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. You ready? That's descriptive of sex. Verse 1 of chapter 5, the conclusion of their wedding night. He says, I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. In other words, I'm satisfied. I have been fully satisfied. And she was satisfied as well. It's a hot chapter. Look at the end of verse 1 of chapter 5. Look what it says there. This is important. Eat. Oh, friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, oh, beloved ones. Who's speaking there? It's very hard to determine who would be speaking that. 
In my personal opinion, I believe that that is God. That's the words of God. That's God saying, enjoy. You're married. You did it right. Now enjoy. Gang, listen. Sex is not a sin. It's not dirty. It is a beautiful gift that God has given to mankind. As long as it's within the context of marriage. Listen, in the context of marriage, the light is green. Go. Enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of Christian couples that think sex is just for procreation. It's not just for procreation. It's also for recreation. God gave that. You know, I think the devil, there's two strategies that the devil uses to pervert sex. The first thing he tries to do is make sex outside of marriage exciting and, ooh, oh, so good. And that destroys people, right? And then the second strategy is to make sex within marriage boring. Cool it down. And there are many Christian couples, married couples, who are frustrated sexually in their marriage because in their mind they kind of think, well, that's kind of a, that's the dirty part. It's not. A husband and a wife should enjoy that. Okay. They've dated. They've gotten engaged. They're married. They've had their first wedding night. Okay, is that it? Is that it? And how are they going to rest, live the rest of their lives? Just laying in bed staring at each other? Of course not. The marriage has to grow. The marriage has to deepen. And you know how marriage grows? You know how relationship grows? Through conflict. Through conflict. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. This is sometime later. They've been married for some time. The lady is speaking. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. My head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So here's the guy. He's coming home. He's coming home late. He's been working. He's out in the fields. Look how she responds in verse 3. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? Go away. You're late. And she's just kind of sitting there behind this closed door, and it's locked. She says in verse 4, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door. So here he is trying to open the door, but it's locked, right? And as you read on, you'll see that he left a little gift there for her when he leaves. 
Verse 5, she says, I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. So he'd left some perfume there. It's almost like the equivalent of leaving a love note. So he's been hurt, but he goes away. Verse 6, she says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I'm lovesick. What happened? A fight. They got in a fight. Now, this is a couple that's done everything right. They dated appropriately. They found some foxes, right? They waited for sexual relationship. They got married. Everything was ideal. But notice, they still had a fight. There is conflict in every single marriage, period. I've had young couples come to me, you know, right after they've been married. They say, Pastor, we're fighting. Can you believe it? And I always say to them, well, who won? No, I'm kidding. I don't do that. (laughs) I say to them, of course you're fighting. Conflict happens. Chores, schedules, kids, finances, health, challenges that you face in life. Conflict happens. Young married couples, they get married and they think, well, maybe we're incompatible. Listen. Every single human being on this planet is incompatible with every other single human being on this planet. Please understand that. All you have to do is live with them. I had a best friend in high school. We were the best of friends. And then we became roommates in college. Big difference. Conflict happens. In a marriage. In fact, chapters 5 and 6 and portions of another chapter are all about conflict. There's eight chapters in this book. Two of eight. 25% of the book is conflict. No matter how many foxes you catch, there's going to be conflict. But look, there's reconciliation. Skip down to verse 2 of chapter 6. She's been looking for him. She finds him. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. He went back to work. I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. So she goes finally to him and finds him. And his response to her is in verse 4. Oh, my love, you're as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away, for they've overcome me. 
Verse 80 says to her, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother. The favorite of the one who bore her. She says to him in verse 11, look at this. I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley. To see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul... That's how she's referring to Solomon. My soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. In other words, they were reconciled. Solomon put her up in the chariot right at the forefront, and everyone knows that there's no doubt they're together, they're in love. They've worked through the conflict. They've reconciled. That's how a marriage matures. Through conflict. And not just conflict, but learning how to resolve conflict. Okay, in your marriage, you're going to have fights. You're going to take laps. Finances. uh, Jealousy issues. Communication. And you're going to take laps. And, you're, and, you're, and you work your way through it. You work your way through all those. And I'm telling you, over the years, as you work your way through that, you'll get to know each other better, and your love for one another grows deeper and stronger. I can say, we've been married over 20 years, and the first 5, 10 years, it's a learning curve, isn't it? It is. You're taking laps. But I promise you, at some point... You plateau. And now I know this woman better than any other person on planet earth. She's seen me at my worst. She's seen me at my best. I've seen her at her worst. I've seen her at her best. We've seen each other cry. We've seen each other in our most vulnerable possible moments in life. And you know what? You fall more and more in love. Fight. Fight through those conflicts. Grow. Every now and then I hear about a couple, and this is so sad to me, even in the church, maybe a couple that's been married for 25, 30 years, and then they get a divorce. After 25, 30 years. And one of them thinks, well, I'm going to go marry someone else. Oftentimes those people have been through a marriage where they never got up the learning curve. And if they only would have, then they would have plateaued. Now you're going to start over? Was someone new? So much better. So much better. Stick with it. I want to take you one more place and then we'll close. Look at chapter 8. So they're together, they're married, they're going through conflicts. 
and eventually you get to a place where you're older now. I like this picture. There's nothing more beautiful than an older man and woman who have lived their lives together. They've gotten through. They've matured. In chapter 8, they've been married, I think, for many years, and now they're going back to visit her parents. They're going back to Baal Hamon. They're going to go stay with her family. They're going to go be reunited with her brothers and the parents there. And uh, so we have a little conversation between them as they're on that journey, as they're about to get there. And notice what she says to him in verse 1 of chapter 8. She says, Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. Now, she says, that's something odd. She says, I wish you were like my brother. Now, why does she say that? In those days, brothers and sisters um, were the only ones that could really get away with public displays of affection, you know, hugging and kissing. and That's the brother and the sister. A boyfriend and a girlfriend didn't make out in public. You didn't show affection like that. And even husbands and wives had to be very discreet in public. But brothers and sisters, they, you know, they're brothers and sisters. They could. And so she's saying, I wish you were like my brother so that when I get there, I can just show everyone my affection to you. So that's kind of what she's saying. But she's also saying this. You've sort of become like my brother. You become like a brother to me. And you've noticed in some of the passages that we've already read, sometimes she, he calls her sister, my sister. And then in verse 2, she says, I can't wait to get you home into my mom's house, and then I'm going to spoil you just like a mother spoils a son. All that to say this. The marriage relationship, I think, is the most beautiful relationship because it's a multifaceted relationship. A good marriage relationship lets you taste all the relationships, especially when it matures appropriately. The husband and the wife, the lovers, the best friends. Brother and sister. You know, you almost become like a brother. You know couples that have been married for a long time, they start to look like each other, don't they? (laughs) They start to talk like each other. They finish each other's sentences. It's a long life together. Almost a brother-sister thing. And then there are even times where it's a a mother-son, father-daughter kind of thing. You know, I, I get sick and she takes care of me. Like a son. She spoils me. And there are times when I spoil her, not as often as she spoils me. But you have all that. Almost every kind of awesome, close relationship can be experienced and enjoyed in a marriage relationship because it's multifaceted. 
It is true companionship. It is true intimacy. It is the blessing of our lives if we do it right. It's worth it. Amen? Now, marriage is under assault. All the perversion out there, all the, all the things that the world teaches. Oh, value marriage. One person said, and I love this, getting married is easy. Staying married is more difficult. Staying happily married for a lifetime is to be considered among the fine arts. Anybody can get married. You just plan a marriage and you invite people. They come. They hug you. They congratulate you. You sing. You dance. That's easy. Anybody can get married. Staying married is harder. Staying happily married for a lifetime. Oh, you do that? You're like a Picasso. You're like a Michelangelo. It's among the fine arts. And that's what God's called us to. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. I want to take just a few moments and and pray for this very important area of our lives. Lord, for those of us here tonight who are married, beautify our marriages. Protect our marriages. Lord, I want to pray for any marriage here tonight that's struggling. Lord, I pray that you would save that marriage. Lord, I pray that steps would be taken to safeguard that marriage. Lord, that priorities would be rearranged. Lord, I pray that you would be the Lord of our marriages. And that those who are truly struggling tonight in a marriage, Lord, that they would, they would put you first, turn to you, and cry out to you to strengthen the marriage. Lord, I want to pray for those tonight who are single. Lord, I would pray that you would help each one to date wisely, to choose wisely. Lord, to consider what truly makes a person attractive. 
Lord, for those who are single, I pray that you would help them to be patient. I pray that you would help them to trust you with that area of life. Lord, help that person to wait for the right one, the one that you bring. Lord, for all of us tonight, be Lord of our lives individually and be Lord of our marriages, be Lord of our families. Help us to follow you in all these matters. Lord, I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for second chances. So grateful, Lord, that you give second chances. There may be some here tonight who feel guilty and feel like failure because of failed relationships in the past. Lord, wipe the slates clean. By your grace, take us where we're at now and help us to follow you and and make the right decisions now. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.